Friends, hello, hello. Good Monday morning to you. This is Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0,、um, where we talk about、um, practical idealism. That would be me, a practical idealist, and where we talk about my experience in navigating the world as an idealist. And you know what? This is our 10th show. We started at the beginning of January, and here we go. We are already the 10th show of Ellie 2.0. Hooray! <laughs> That's not going to get us much. And so I talk here about idealism because I believe it's a word that has not, has, it's lost its luster. When I grew up in the 60s and 70s, I heard that word quite a bit. And I'll, I'll tell you, I think we need to be talking about idealists, about being idealistic a whole lot more than what we've been doing. And it is my goal to get America back on track doing that. So, today in our, my A block,、um, my A segment, I want to talk about Sidney Poitier, who in the mid 1960s was the most famous black actor in America and possibly in the world. Now, I grew up、uh, watching、uh, Sidney Poitier movies. I was、uh, still a kid and then a teenager.、Um, But some of you listeners are well familiar with Sidney Poitier. His films include To Sir with Love, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Lilies of the Field. For that movie, Lilies of the Field, he won Best Actor、um, in the Academy Award,、uh, with an Academy Award, as well as Best Actor for the Golden Globes. He is still alive. He is 91 years old. He was ranked. Number 22 out of the top 25 greatest male actors by the American Film Institute.、Uh, Portier was born on Cat Island in the Bahamas in 1927, and he later lived in Nassau. When he was 16 years old, he moved to New York City, where he first worked as a dishwasher. And while in New York, he auditioned for the American Negro Theater. And from there, he went to Broadway, and then he went to the big screen. Now, many of you are familiar with his movies, and if you're not, I really recommend going and, and calling them up on you know, Comcast or Netflix or whatever, because they are wonderful movies. They are at the dawn of age about you know, the way things,、um, uh, movies were in the 1960s. You know, they were perfecting Technicolor and doing things, and, and in some respects, those movies are larger than life. But in the, in the 1960s,、um, Sidney Poitier was, was typecast as a black character who was not permitted to have any sexual or personality faults. I mean, he was, in many respects, the perfect man. But at the same time, he was challenging stereotypes in a world and in a country where there was great racial upheaval in the United States. Now, I want you to think about this. He was being given. The roles to be a perfect person with white characters in his movies where they were not perfect, where they were flawed. And this typecasting, this, this requirement that he be perfect, did not stop him, though, from supporting the civil rights movement. He was at the March on Washington. He also went to the South、um, for the Freedom Summer. He was there with actor Harry Belafonte. But there's a particular scene. In the heat of the night, that I want to talk about,、um, that I think makes his greatest contribution to equality and equity, and in that sense, I think makes him an idealist. 
Now, I want to set the scene for you. In 1967, when the movie In the Heat of the Night came out, um, the movie came out in August. For three months, no, actually going back to April, um, uh, for several months, in 1967, there were race riots going on in the United States. I mean, we are talking very serious. Riots were whole sections of cities were being burned down, where people were looting and where people were being shot. And usually the people being shot were people of color, and usually the people pulling the trigger were white people. So this is the summer of 1967. We... we um, you know, the United States Supreme Court had not even yet ruled on Loving versus um, uh, Virginia, had not even yet ruled in, uh, when this movie, In the Heat of the Night, came out, had not even ruled that it was unconstitutional to prohibit black people from marrying white people. That is the, that's the stage that was set. And cities were burning across the country because uh, people of color, mainly blacks, were, were disenchanted with um, the lack of progress. Um, that was coming their way. So this movie, The Heat of the Night, comes out in August, early August of 67. And in that movie, Sidney Poitier plays Virgil Tibbs, a Philadelphia detective who went through, um, who through uh, some circumstances ends up helping uh, the local sheriff investigate a murder in fictional Sparta, Mississippi. So you've got a Philadelphia, Pennsylvania cop that's um, that's Sidney Poitier, who just is passing through uh, Sparta, Mississippi, who ends up becoming the lead investigator for a murder that took place in Sparta. And he starts working with the local sheriff, um, a, a, a racist named Rod, um, played by Rod Steiger. And Rod, by the way, Rod Steiger, by the way, won an Academy Award for his acting in The Heat of the Night. And, and that movie, In the Heat of the Night, won Best Picture for 1967. So you have Sidney Poitier, his character Tibbs, helping the sheriff, played by Rod Steiger, investigate a murder. And in one scene in this movie, Tibbs um, goes to question a wealthy plantation owner who um, last saw... Um, the decedent, the person who had been murdered in the movie. And Tibbs is, is in, a, is in the, the greenhouse of this plantation owner, an older white man. And in this scene, um, the, the black butler is, is standing there with a pitcher of water and, and glasses for the guests. I mean, standard black butler with, with um, you know, the coat and the white gloves and all of that. So he's, he's there watching everything transpire. And you have Tibbs Sidney Poitier, you have the sheriff, played by Rod Steiger, and you have this white actor um, playing this plantation owner. And Poitier is questioning this plantation owner, asking him questions about um, the decedent, about their interaction before the decedent died. And it enrages the plantation owner in the movie. It enrages him so much that a black man is questioning him in any way. And so, as the scene goes, the plantation owner goes up to Virgil Tibbs and slaps him. Just one slap across Sidney Poitier's face. Now, here's where this is important. Because the original script called for Tibbs, Sidney Poitier, not to react. The original script called for Poitier to simply 
take it. Just like in 1967, blacks were expected to simply take it by the white establishment. But Partier, he insisted, as they were getting ready to shoot the scene and ready to uh, do that movie, he insisted that the scene be rewritten. And he insisted that when his character Tibbs was slapped by the white plantation owner, that Tibbs slapped the man back. And that's exactly how the scene was shot. So Portier gets slapped, and immediately he goes back and he slaps the white, he white plantation on her back. Um, and that slap, after that came out in that movie, that slap was known as the slap heard round the world. And it was. And in the scene... After Pottier slaps the white man back, he says, quote, There was a time not so long ago that I could have had you shot, unquote, for Pottier slapping the man back. And after that, Tibbs just turns around and walks out. And if you've ever seen the scene, you want to watch the, the facial expression on the black butler who saw the whole scene take place. Now, it was the slap heard round the world. It was. It was very important that white audiences in America saw a black man, a well-respected actor, Sidney Poitier, saw him stand up for himself and not take it any longer. You know, I had always admired Sidney Poitier. I mean, he was just, I mean, I just... I remember so vividly watching him in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and how that just so challenged racial stereotypes in the country at a time when everything needed to be challenged. And I so admired him then. But I'll tell you, as I read about his role and his scene in In the Heat of the Night with that slap heard round the world, it made me admire that man all the more. And it made me admire him because he was changing minds as he was acting. And it was a time when our country needed its mind changed dramatically. Just like we're back at it again today in a variety of other ways in which our mind needs to be changed. So, check that movie out. In the heat of the night, look for the slap heard round the world. When we come back, I will do my next segment where I'll talk a little bit about my experience. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0, one of the relatively few transgender radio hosts in the world, talking about being a practical idealist. I hope you like what you hear. I'll be back in a minute. Thanks. I'm Adam Jennings, and I approve this message. Some people say weapons don't kill people. People kill people. But if that were the case, then we wouldn't care if North Korea had nukes, would we? You ever think about that? Let's get real. Each year, gun violence hurts nearly 50,000 Americans, including 4,000 kids. And while some politicians act like tough guys, they're too chicken to stand up to the NRA who gave Eric Paulson an A-plus rating, along with a check for $20,000. He's working for them, not us. I think any congressman who has an A-plus rating from the NRA has the blood of these children on their hands. NRA, give me an F, because I believe in fighting for kids, not cash. I believe our politicians should show the same courage as the kids, teachers, and first responders showed at Parkland, Sandy Hook, and countless others. 
It's time for a Congress that fights and runs towards danger and not away from it. Join me at JenningsForCongress.com. Thank you. Paid for by Adam Jennings for Congress. So, who's going to do what? Flashlights? Nowhere to be found. Emergency supply kits? Not packed. What about blankets? We have an old towel. Cell phones? May not work. Emergency water? Not a drop. Perfect. We all know where we're meeting if we're separated. The library. Right. Jones House. The bus stop. And I'll be waiting here wondering where you all are. Great. It sounds like we don't have a plan. Winging it is not an emergency plan. Make sure your kids know what to do during an emergency. Who to call, where to meet, what to pack. Visit ready.gov kids for tips and information. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Paul Metz inviting you to listen to the Wall of Power Radio Hour every weekend on AM 950. We are now in our third year of broadcasting on the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. Min Post has called us one of the 22 most independently entertaining and cool radio shows in the Twin Cities. We feature cool people from all walks of life and from all 50 states. Every Saturday at 6 p.m., replayed Sunday at 4 p.m. on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Shamblot from Shamblot Family Dentistry. We're the fear-free, get-you-out-of-pain-now dental office. And I'm Rachel Shamblot. Did you know a lot of people are afraid of the dentist? You don't need to be afraid of my dad. He makes going to the dentist comfortable and even fun. We don't care if you're a dental regular or haven't seen a dentist in years. We just want to make you comfortable and get you out of pain. If you don't see my dad, please see another dentist. Take care of your teeth because they're the only ones you get. Call 1-800-FIX-MY-TEETH or visit fixmyteeth.us. Hi, Matt McNeil from AM950. I bought my newest Sienna from Rudy Luther Toyota in July, and I'm so in love with it. It's comfortable if I'm running the kids to activities or on a longer road trip. It's safe with backup cameras, blind spot protection, and the safety features Toyotas are known for. And it's fun with the bells and whistles, EcoDrive, sunroof, and so much more. I love my new Rudy Luther Toyota Sienna. Stop into Rudy Luther and test drive one yourself at 394 and 169, five miles west of downtown Minneapolis. Welcome back. Welcome back to AM 950 and LE 2.0, where I am not afraid to call myself a practical idealist and where I talk about how together we can make this world a better place. Absolutely. We can. We can do that. And um, I want to talk now a little bit about my work. And, and, and please understand, you know, I'm not trying to make this a show all about me, although it does have my name on it. And although the station owner, Chad Larson, God love you, has made it clear that he wants me to talk about my work. But please understand that my work in many ways really is work about humans in general. And in many ways, my work seems to ripple. It ripples across um, a lot of different planes. And it just, I think, has an impact um, for all people. And, and certainly that is what I'm trying to do. So at this part of the show, I like to talk about some things that I'm doing. And so I speak and train on human inclusivity across the country and into Canada. And, um, and I speak at law firms and government entities and businesses and colleges, universities, you name it. Pretty much I've spoken everywhere. I mean, every kind of different entity. And everywhere I go, almost every time I speak, at the beginning, I have my little spiel about 
certain things that I say at every talk I give, regardless of what the talk is. I have this little inter introduction. Part of that introduction is what I call my standing offer, where I make my standing offer. And that standing offer is this. Um, it is that I will meet with any human in a public place for up to an hour to talk about anything related to surviving the human condition. And I always add, I don't watch my watch. And so I do, I make, I, at the beginning of every talk I give, I say, and, and I always, there are handouts that I give for every talk I give. And at the bot, the last full paragraph of the handout is this paragraph that starts with, in its in italicies, my standing offer colon. And, and I mean that offer. I mean, I am very serious about it. I make clear that I'm not a therapist. You know, I'm not a counselor. I'm not licensed to do any of that. But why do I make that standing offer? Why in the world do I do that? Um, I do that because um, I, you know, I believe that we have an obligation to be there for each other. I do. I believe that. I believe that we have an obligation to be, to be there to have each other's backs. Um, and uh, I just really, really feel that that's something that I'm called to do. And sometimes, you know, one of the things I train on is that giving of your time is a form of compassion. And we are all so incredibly busy, but time really is a form of compassion for other humans. Now, when I meet people, I do it safely. I meet them in public. I never, you know, they don't come to my place and I don't go to theirs. Um, there's one place in particular where I meet a lot of people. It's a, it's a pub and, um, the, the staff knows know me there. They look out for me. And um, and so I, I do this in a very, at least, intelligent way. Um, not, you know, very frequently no one takes me up on my offer. But over the years, I'd say several dozen people have. And knock on wood, listen, I just knocked. I've not had ne negative experience with anyone. Yeah, I've had a couple of people where... Yeah, you're, what you wanted to talk about was a little odd, but for the most part, no. It's always been positive. And you know what I hear with my standing offer? With my attempt to do my part for humanity, I hear a lot about people struggling. I hear a great deal about people struggling with gender identity, their own or that of relatives or other people. Um, and so I, I, I do that and, and I just... I'm, I'm honored that they would come and, and talk to me. With those folks, I offer tips on how to navigate the medical or the counseling systems and, and on how, and if, you've got a, if they have a family member who's got gender ide identity issues, um, I talk about how they can be supportive of those people. Now, some people come and they don't talk at all about that kind of stuff. They, they, I've had, I had a woman once in her early 20s who showed up in a coffee uh, shop with a Great Dane. And this woman was fairly short, and this Great Dane was very big. I mean, the Great Dane uh, was almost larger than she was. And she wanted to talk to me about progressing her career in the business world. And um, that, was, that was all well and fine, except the woman was heavily tattooed. I mean, we're talking like a lot of tattoos and heavily pierced. But, you know, as I got to talk to her, I realized that she had, even though she had those challenges, she had some spunk. And I told her, I gave her some tips, some ideas about how to approach prospective employers um, and how to perhaps um, uh, make those tattoos an asset rather than a liability. And, and I think that 
I was very certain that she was going to succeed. I had one uh, young woman who had bought my book, uh, Getting Too Well in a Memoir About Love, Honesty, and Gender Change, and um, who was talking about being out, that is, being out as a lesbian in her personal life, but not at work, and her concerns, her fears about how um, her work would show up and how it would impact her career at work. And I will tell you, one of the common things that I hear from sitting with people during my standing offer sessions is fear. We are all so afraid of so many different things. I had a man who wanted to meet me once about um, uh, the stigma of being a suicide survivor. You know, that somebody in his life had taken their life and about how it stigmatized him and other family members and friends. Now, I know a thing or two about being a suicide survivor because I am one. My father, when I was 34 years old um, in 1990. And so um, I, I, I spoke with him. You know, sometimes people actually write to me. They don't want to speak to me, but they write to me. And I had a woman once write write to me from Christianburg, Virginia, which I thought was so ironic because she wanted to write to me about her new transgender daughter. So this is somebody who had been assigned male at birth, um, but who had transitioned to female. And she wanted to write to me to ask for my perspective because her husband, who had been very close to what had then been her son, had disowned this child had refused to speak to this child for three years as of the time that this person, the mom, wrote to me. And the mom had come to accept, had come to accept her new daughter. Uh, the mom was loving towards her new daughter, but the, the dad was not. And she wanted, and I, I've just got to tell you, it broke my heart to read her words about how it was tearing her up that she's tried to be there, be supportive of her husband, be supportive of her child, and it was not working. Um, all of this has shown me that we are struggling, that we are, that we are afraid, as I said, and that we have all of these commonalities that, that we're afraid to share with other people because we're afraid of being judged. And it also, sitting with folks, has shown me that there's great value to getting perspective from a stranger. You know, I mean, I, I have no dog in any of those fights. And those folks know that. And I think it allows them to be more honest. I think it allows them to be more willing to say things that they would not say to other people whom they know. That allows for me to share perspective that they might not otherwise get. Again, I am no one special. Trust me. I, I, I am very humble. But I do have perspective. I have lived in two separate genders. I've had now three separate careers. I've raised two kids, both of whom are adoptees from a foreign country, both of whom are children of color. I do have some, something to share, I believe. And you know what? Many of you out there listening right now, you have something to share as well. I would like in the, you know, in the best possible way to just 
unleash <laughs> your idealism so that you would feel comfortable in talking to strangers, not counseling them, but being there for them. I am humbled by the fact that people trust me and would even want my perspective. It is a special role, one that I take very, very seriously. And so, I have enjoyed being with you again on another Monday. Um, you've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, one of the few transgender radio hosts in the world with Ellie 2.0 on AM 950. If you've enjoyed the show, email me at Ellie 2.0 radio. That would be 2.0 radio at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to know whether or not my idealism is starting to ring true with you. I don't hear from many people in response to this show, and, it, and part of the problem is it's taped. I don't know if we'll ever do it live um, in the future, um, but I appreciate you listening. I am trying to make a difference in the world, and I know that many of you are as well. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Sign up for my newsletter, The Ripple. Buy my book, please. Um, the book is Getting to Ellen, a memoir about love, honesty, and gender change. It is on, a it is on Amazon, Kindle, Nook, um, or you can contact me and I will sell you a copy that would be inscribed. Until next week, please use that word idealism. Look out for idealists and do good in the world. Thank you so very much. Bye. Bye.